Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. Randy Hunter Epstein will join us to discuss history of hormones. And- so stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, joining us today is Dr. Randy Hunter Epstein. Dr. Hunter Epstein is the author of Get Me Out, an adjunct professor at Columbia University and a lecturer at Yale University. Her new book, entitled Aroused, the History of Hormones and How They Control Just About Everything, explores hormones and uh, our study of them. And Dr. Epstein, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grex Science Show. Thank you for inviting me. Well, it is certainly our pleasure, certainly a fascinating book you've written here, Aroused, uh, which you talk about uh, the history of hormones. And I'm curious, how did you become interested in this topic? Well, you know, my last book was on history of childbirth, which actually um, I, I did a lot of hormone history in order to understand pregnancy and childbirth. And then seeing some of the eccentric characters um, that went into some of the hormone history there sort of piqued my curiosity. And then as I started to dig deeper into hormones and how we discovered them and how we figured out how they worked. What particularly um, fascinated me was that the last century, the 20th century, was this period of huge advances, but also some outrageous claims. So I think that my real interest was trying to figure out how I can allow readers to figure out who were the heroes and who were the hucksters. Well, where's sort of the best place to begin, do you think? Well, the story I like begins before the beginning of hormone history. I like to think of it as the prequel because actually the very first true hormone experiment occurred a half a century before the start of the field. And this was when this German doctor in his backyard did this really wacky experiment. So he got a bunch of his roosters and he cut off on one rooster, both testicles, and they got kind of fat and lazy. And this was something farmers knew for years. So that wasn't any great shakes. We kind of knew, oh, you could castrate your poultry and things would happen. But here's what this German doctor did that no one had done before. In one of his castrated roosters, he took a testicle of another rooster and put it in this castrated rooster's belly. He wanted to see, can this testicle work no matter where it was put in the body? And voila, it did. That little rooster went back to its hen-chasing, cocky self. So he wrote this up in a scientific journal, and it's a hard, long German name of the title, but it just may, it basically says, something about here's how the testicles can work not in their normal place of location. And what he did was describe that there must be some chemicals that go through the blood and get their targets no matter what. He, pub- he did a good study, published in a good journal, 
And then he kind of went on his own merry way and then went off to do other things. So it's interesting because it kind of shows the way science works, that you have to do a good experiment. Check, he did that. Publish in a good journal, he did that. But then he didn't really understand the ramifications of what he proved, and he didn't really try to promote this new theory. That wouldn't happen until 50 years later in around 1905 when some doctors read that article and started doing their own studies and said, oh, we've got this new field here. We've got these chemicals that work in a way that we've never realized before. And basically what what we know is, if, if you think about it, we're so used to using the word hormones and hormone this and hormone that, but it's kind of amazing to think that we put the testes and the pituitary and the adrenal gland and thyroid and growth hormone and all these things that are so different there is one unifying theme and the unifying theme is that they are chemicals released from a gland and can reach a faraway target. So they're like your body's Wi-Fi. I like to think of it that way. I have no idea how Wi-Fi works. I can barely turn on my television, but I understand hormones. But hormones really are like your internal Wi-Fi and there's like little routers in your body that can help them get to their targets. How is it that then it just it went from the scientific discovery into part of the uh, popular knowledge? It's a long path from there to here. It's a long path, and it started with trying to isolate what these substances were, trying to figure out how they act, doing a lot of studies on animals, which is what we do, taking out their pituitary and see what happens, taking out their ovaries, taking out the pancreas and see what happens. So there was a, a long history and a very circuitous one. So when we finally did in, the 19, in 1922, when we finally realized, wow, there's this substance in the pancreas called insulin, and if we can take insulin from cows and give it to babies born with diabetes, we will change it from a deadly disease to a chronic illness. So really, the the isolation of insulin and its use just in the 1920s really infused this incredible enthusiasm into the field of hormones. It was then that people started thinking, oh, wow, what's in the ovaries? What's in the testes? Let's just, all we have to do is isolate the hormone, take it out of an animal, inject it into humans, and we'll cure everything. Um, of course, it wasn't as simple as that. As you know how science goes, just because one thing worked doesn't mean all the other things worked. So we shortly after that, or maybe not shortly, but a couple decades after that realized, okay, we can isolate growth hormone from a cow just the way we isolated insulin from a cow, but cow growth hormone doesn't make humans grow. So everything had its own little tweaks. That brings up the dark side of the book, uh, mentioned along the way of various charlatans use these discoveries to kind of peddle false remedies. They did. I mean, I think there's this long history. I like to think of it like seeds on a big tree, that there are these fascinating researchers and a lot of compassionate doctors that have planted the seeds to this science of endocrinology that has grown into this large tree. But what's also happened is some charlatans have taken advantage of the low-lying fruit and thought, oh, wait, this shows some hint of making behavior this way? Good, I'm going to market that. So we have, for instance, we've known since about the 1950s that oxytocin is a hormone, not oxycodone, but oxytocin, a hormone. It's the hormone that makes the womb squeeze to get the baby out. It's the hormone that gets your breast milk coming out. And then we also learned 
that it is the hormone in animals that really starts that mother-baby bonding. So if you block oxytocin from a goat that's, that's giving birth, it will not nurture its baby. If you give oxytocin to a virgin rat, it will start nurturing some stranger's baby. So that's fascinating. That's all well and good. But there's been some savvy scientists that have sort of glommed onto that and thought, oh, wait, it's the love hormone. What if we package this oxytocin and sell it online and say that you can spray it on yourself and the guy at the bar sitting next to you will be attracted to you? So, yes, you can go online and buy a jar of oxytocin spray. I'm not actually sure what's in it. It didn't go through the FDA. Um, but I don't, I think you're going to need to do something else to get the guy at the bar next to you to be, to be just as attracted to you as the goat mom and goat baby. Is the science of hormones unique in this way? I mean, I think it is in the sense that it's just too alluring. There's research that we have about obesity. There's research we have about love. There's research we have about growth. So it taps into all these things that are just, you know, that, that in some ways you could see that it plays into people's fears or their hopes. So, yeah, I'm sure you could find charlatans in all sorts of scientific fields. But I just think that when it comes to endocrinology, it's just always been this lore. And it's interesting when you go back into the archives and the correspondence, which I have, Ever since the beginning of the field in the 1910s, there's been correspondence between a lot of the leading researchers saying, ah, this, this, we're going to get a bad name for our field. We have to make sure all these charlatans aren't around. This is terrible. We can't let this happen. Um, someone called it what it, a hormone orgy, and this was back in 1920s because they were worried that their field would get a bad name. Uh, was there something that really just sort of surprised you uh, the most when you when you went through this history? Well, I think a few things did. I think one is the hormone experiment that I that I told you about the one in the eighteen in eighteen forty eight because it just lay there and no one jumped at it and said, "Wow, this is a new field." Um, I would say the other thing that really surprised me is a lot of some of a few of the. Um, I guess pioneers that I would say were not doctors and were not um, savvy. On, they weren't the savvy entrepreneurs, but there were some parents with children that had hormone defects that became real activists. So we have patient activists that have really created a change in the field. So I could say for one in growth hormone, yes, there was a triumph and a tragedy with growth hormone, but during the time when scientists were trying to collect pituitaries to eke out human growth hormone, it was the National Institutes of Health were huge players. The Veterans Administration were huge players. And then there was a mom from Long Island who was right up there with these two top leading governmental agencies who was writing, who, she was writing letters to pathologists. She was going to morgues. She was collecting and getting, you can't really just collect pituitaries and body parts now, but this was the 1960s and she became an activist and advocate and really helped get the system going, so much so that the doctors said, you have to be on our expert committee. And this, you'll see this happen when you talk about transgender, people that identify as transgender. 
what created a lot of the change that is now leading to better treatment for children who identify as transgender. It really, yes, there's some wonderful science that's going on, but there's also patients and parents of patients that are pushing doctors and scientists to make sure that we get the right kind of, not just the right kind of hormone therapy, but the right kind of compassion and the right kind of treatment and the right kind of acceptance. Do you think endocrinology is unique in this way just because it deals with chemicals that are so essential to put into almost everything? They're dealing with chemicals that are essential to everything, and I've gained a huge respect for the endocrinologists I've spoken to. I think they they appreciate how powerful these tiny, potent chemicals are. We have endocrinologists now that deal with specifically the ramifications of cancer therapy. So it used to be, you know, cancer was so deadly with childhood cancers. We've made huge gains that there are kids that are actually cured of their cancer, which is wonderful. But now we have to think, what has the chemotherapy done to their endocrine system? We want to make sure these kids are fertile. We want to make sure these kids live happy lives, that they're growing, that they don't have insulin issues. And so chemotherapy, you know, it's a poison. It mucks around with your system. But now we have pediatric endocrinologists that are saying it's not enough that these kids have survived. Let's monitor their hormones and let's use what we have to make sure these kids can live healthy, long lives. So where are we now in terms of the frontiers of endocrinology? What are, what are the challenges? What's left to be done? I think what's fascinating is we have, and I would still say, a lot of hints in terms of how hormones control behavior. We have hints from extreme examples that there are a few people that have um, a minority of people that have these leptin defects so that they have uncontrollable appetites. We're not talking gain weight easily, but this compulsion to eat. While this is a rare condition, it's helping us understand these clues of behavior and hormones. We kind of get it. We're not there yet, which makes the future that much more exciting. That We're, we're also looking at hormones in the immune system. We know that they're tightly interconnected. Again, we're shining a light, and it's fascinating what we're getting at, but we need to do more research to really uncover that. And then lastly, I would say we're starting, we're doing the research in terms of what we call endocrine disruptors, what chemicals are in the environment, pesticides, pollutants, and how are they affecting the the, the growth of fetuses? How are they affecting us? We have hints, we're worried about certain chemicals, but we don't have hardcore proof in certain areas. And hopefully we can get to a way that we have a clear understanding. We can get rid of certain products, we can get rid of certain components of certain products, and we'll know how to protect ourselves better. Maybe to close on a bit of a light note, uh, after looking at all these different hormones, do you, do you have a favorite one? Oh, a favorite hormone, that's a, that's a good one. Um, gosh. Well, I guess since I have four kids and I've breastfed for so long and I've been pregnant, I guess I'd have to put oxytocin up there. I'm not going to go buy the spray and spray it all around me. But I do feel this incredible, as any parent does, this incredible tie to your own children. So at some level, I would say, yeah, that it's this oxytocin bond. So, yeah, I'm not going to go out and buy the spray, but it did become one of my favorite stories to write about. <laughs> I got two of our, our own, so uh, mm-hmm. I can I can appreciate that one. All right. Well, we were just talking to Dr. Randy Hutter Epstein. The new book is called Aroused, The History of Hormones and How They Control Just About Everything. And uh, Dr. Epstein, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. 
And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on rocking.